According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me as we get started in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verses uh, 22 through 25, the end of the chapter, the end of the book. Hebrews 13, verses 22 through 25. Last week we looked at verses 20 and 21, how the God of peace is God the Father who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, and He's the one who works in us. The very God who resurrected Jesus Christ is the God and Father who works in us. So that should dispel any sense of inadequacy you might feel because uh, He is very adequate. He was adequate to resurrect our Savior. He's adequate to do anything in us that is pleasing in His sight, including equipping you. Verse 21 says, equip you in every good thing to do His will. Notice every good thing. I double-checked that in the Greek. It means every good thing, all right? (laughs) Everything. See, some people have this terrible idea that, uh, you know, they're going to handle the little things, but things that they can't handle. If it's too much for the, for, you know, God can do the really big stuff. And, uh, and, and He expects us to handle the little stuff. But no, there is no little stuff. There is no big stuff. It's all God's to do. Everything. Equipping you in every good thing to do His will. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So we need to learn how to get ourselves out of the way more often. How to allow Him to do the work. And where we are volitionally His fellow workers as we put ourselves off to the side and we submit to not our will but Thine be done. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. His sight, not ours. <laughs> we may not like it. It might not be pleasant. But it's pleasing in His sight. And so this is what it's all about. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to open our eyes and teach us this morning. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. Thank You for the freedom that we have uh, to assemble together for the blessings of this face-to-face class. We still continue to, uh, to be careful as we approach. We still continue to be mindful of uh, the, the virus that's out there and uh, have all of our extra cleaning procedures in place. But Father, we, uh, we're not in fear and we are here in faith and we thank you for the face-to-face ministry. We thank you for the YouTube streaming. We thank you for the technology that allows us to be together even when we're apart. So Father... Uh, Bless this message, bless your children, and bless our time together in the Word of God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so picking up uh, with our slideshow, we almost I got just a little sliver from last week to uh, kind of get us up to speed here, and then uh, we'll gain new ground. And depending on how long it takes us to, uh, to do this, um, is it possible to cover 22, 23, 24, 25 in a single class? Could this book be done today or next week (laughs) or six weeks from now? (laughs) No, honestly, um, I kind of anticipate this week and next to tie up the last of these verses, maybe even this week if we go fast enough. Uh, But then I do actually have five messages prepped for a review. 
Because we started this series three years ago, and some of us don't remember what we looked at three years ago. And so we're kind of to take five classes to recap the five main portions of the book, and, uh, and, and that'll take us through the end of August. There's five Sundays in August, which means that the start of Genesis will be in September. So I look forward to Labor Day weekend, look forward to the beginning of September, and uh, the launch of our new Genesis series. All right, now... Actually, I want to back up just to verse 21. We talked about the God of peace, a very Pauline phrase, although Paul's not the author of Hebrews. The uh, uh, author of Hebrews was a companion of Paul's and very influenced by Pauline theology. We talk about Jesus Christ, who is the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. Uh, marvelous titles. The good shepherd, of course, is John chapter 10. The great shepherd is here in Hebrews 13, 20. And then the chief shepherd can be found in 1 Peter chapter 5, whereby faithful pastors are rewarded when the chief shepherd appears as the faithful under-shepherd, the faithful local church pastor-teacher that has a reward waiting for him that's personally handed to him by Jesus Christ. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's a, a, a reward that I look forward to receiving should I be found faithful when he returns. Jesus was raised from the dead with the blood of the eternal covenant. And I hope we uh, are, are clear on this. It's going to be one of our main points of review. One of the dominant themes in the book of Hebrews is the new covenant. It's one that gets taught in different ways depending on what pastor you're listening to. But as we have taught it here and as we have seen, the new covenant is not here yet because the new covenant is made after the tribulation. It's made with the regathered nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so it's ready to be made. The blood of the new covenant has been shed. It was shed on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. But the blood of the new covenant has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel, as was promised to them in Jeremiah 31. And so Jesus is raised from the dead with the blood of the eternal covenant. He took that blood to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple. But he has not yet brought that blood back to earth in order to sprinkle the Jewish people with it. The nation of Israel has to be cleansed with the blood of the covenant before they can begin the millennial kingdom. And so it's important that we identify that. Now what's our part in this place? I mean our part in this in this role? Well, we are in Christ. We are ministers of the new covenant. And he makes us to be adequate as ministers of the new covenant. This is a part of how he prepares the bride, he prepares the church. We are the body and bride of Jesus Christ. And so in this life, while we're here in the church age, in this physical life, we are being equipped. But when we return with him in the resurrection, when we return with him at the battle of Armageddon and conquer the world and and bring in the, the throne of David and the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, then when he begins his role as the mediator, we begin our role as the ministers. We will be ministers of the new covenant in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was raised from the dead with the blood of the eternal covenant, prepared to sprinkle it on the nation of Israel once they are prepared to enter into the new covenant. And they're not ready for it yet. It takes the tribulation to get them ready for it. In fact, the nation of Israel to this day remains in rejection remains in denial. They view Jesus as not the Jesus of Nazareth that we worship as our Lord and Savior. Jewish people today, for the most part, hold that He is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. He is a heretic who claimed to be the Messiah. 
and that uh, they, Jewish people today, for the most part, are still in rejection of Jesus as their Christ. For that remnant, thankfully, for that remnant of Jewish people who get saved, who believe that Jesus is their Messiah, who believe in Christ for eternal life, guess what? They no longer are Jewish. In the, uh, in the record book of heaven, they, get to, they, they become a part of the bride of Christ. They're part of the new creation. They are neither Jew nor Gentile. So we lost our Gentile status when we got saved. They lose their Jewish status when they get saved. So I can technically say that, there, that every Jew on the planet today is an unbeliever because every Jew who gets saved is no longer a Jew. They become royal family of God. They become a part of the body and bride of Jesus Christ. Just like every Gentile on the planet today is an unbeliever. Because every Gentile that gets saved is no longer a Gentile. They are neither Jew nor Gentile in the body of Christ. So those are the different, uh, the different aspects there. As we ran out of time, we were discussing this. Having prepared the mediator, the Father prepares ministers of the new covenant. Jesus is the mediator. The church are the ministers. The Greek noun diakonos actually is the same noun we use for deacons. You might have noticed in your church bulletin, we've got two new deacons around here with smiling faces in the, uh, the photograph that was included in the, uh, in the bulletin. Uh, so they're very nice, by the way. And um, I don't think we did that for the other new deacons. This is a, a, nice, uh, a nice boost for the, the guys that just started. Anyway, the term diakonos is a servant, is a minister, and is a helper. So just as deacons here help the shepherd, deacons in the kingdom are going to be helping the shepherd because the great shepherd is the one that's the minister, the mediator of the new covenant. And we are his deacons in in mediating that covenant to the nation of Israel. So stay tuned for that. And so the father is at work. He's preparing us. He's equipping us. He's working in us. And uh, in all these verses here, including... Uh, why you're in Bible class this morning, you're here to get equipped. But if you think it's Pastor Bob equipping you, think again. Because it's the Father who's equipping you. It's the same God of peace who brought up Jesus Christ from the dead is the same God of peace that equips us. Equipping us, working in us for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 agrees with this. It's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure working in us through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to share these verses and hopefully we'll avoid the demon-possessed Bible software that we had last hour. We learned what it was between the two services, so, so now we won't... If it ever does happen again, it's happened once in 25 years, so if it ever does happen again, somebody will have to remind me to hit Control-R real fast. Logos has a feature where it will read to you. And as it reads to you, it advances the, the text one verse at a time as it reads it out loud. But we didn't hear any of it because the volume was off. But that's what was happening and Jacob figured it out. We got it fixed. So if I forget next time, remind me, control R. Stops the reading. God's the one who equips us. God the Father in every good thing to do His will. He gives us the equipment. We can't blame faulty equipment. We can't be like Adam blaming, well, it was that woman you gave me. You should have given me a better woman and I wouldn't have sinned. That's what Adam was saying. And uh, no, we can't blame what God gives us. He gives us exactly what we need, equipping us perfectly, working in us. Not only did he give us the equipment, he's doing the work. He's working in us, in and through us for his good pleasure, that which is pleasing in his sight. And so we find this. We find other passages in equipping as it relates to uh, Ephesians 4.12. 
for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is why we have evangelists and pastor teachers in the local church. These are the gifts that that Jesus Christ provides so that the Father can now equip believers in these lampstands in the local church. How about 2 Timothy 3.17? The Word of God is... All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So not only are we equipped, but we're trained. And we're trained in the Word of God so that the man of God may be adequate. That's the adequacy as ministers of the new covenant. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And these are the things that we're dealing with here. You know, you think about why does a soldier go to boot camp? They're getting trained, they're getting equipped. You can have the best equipment in the world, but terrible training, and that's no good. Uh, You can have the most wonderful training in the world and crummy equipment, and that's no good. I'm not sure which I would choose if I had to have one or the other. I'd rather have both. Great training and great equipment. And that's what we have in the Word of God. God gives us the training and the equipment to glorify His Son, to function in the church age, and then to take the church age equipping into the millennial kingdom once we are resurrected and glorified with our Savior. You ever think about it in those terms? You know, we get different folks and they would like to serve, they just don't feel adequate. Are you kidding me? Whether it's the Sunday school or it's uh, nursery or whatever capacity, the library or other things... Um, you know, you get Christians or they maybe being a deacon or whatever, and they're thinking about, well, I'm, I might do that someday. I just don't feel, I don't feel adequate. And if you, if you really study Christian adequacy, we find that the adequacy here and now in the church age is the least of our adequacy because we have the additional adequacy of this life preparing us for the next. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Do you not know that we will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged through us, are we not competent to to create the the, the smallest of law courts and and handle our own issues here in-house? Of course we are. So the logical premise of 1 Corinthians 6 says that God is equipping us for the next life. And if He's equipping us for the next life, then anything in this life just goes right along with it. It's, it's part of the process. It's a no-brainer. Anyway, that's uh, not on this slide, but no extra credit, or just no charge for that. All right, so he's, uh, he's equipping us, and it's the Word of God that equips us. Doctrine is what equips us, okay? The eternal truth from the Scriptures, from the Word of God, is what equips us. Not fun and games or silly stories or entertainment from uh, in the earthly realm. Philippians 2.13 It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So if you find that the mental attitude is having struggles, if you find that I don't seem to have the positive volition I used to have, or I'm struggling in the positive volition department, well, that's not God's issue, that's your issue. So ask yourself, is God not at work in me to will of His good pleasure? What is it that's within me that's hindering God in willing and doing of His good pleasure? And it becomes a big red flag that I, I've got something to confess. I've got to be restored to fellowship. I'm, I'm in carnality. I've got to get back into spirituality. I've got to confess my sins because He's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness so that if I'm in fellowship, my will should be His will working through me. As it says here, 
It is God who is at work in you both to will. That's the mental attitude dynamic preceding the doing. To will and to work for His good pleasure. And He does so through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19 I need to work on my typing skills. That's where all those accidental things happen. God the fact that God is working in us as a prototype, He did it first in His Son. He's working in us because we're in Christ. And even before we were here, before there ever was a church, when all there was was Jews and Gentiles on this earth, there was no church on this earth yet back in the Old Testament times, Jesus Christ came to this earth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus Christ in the flesh, in His first Advent incarnation, you know what was happening there? God the Father was working in and through him. And it's curious. We read this here, this ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God, that's the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The Father was working in Christ when Jesus walked this earth, when Jesus went to the cross. Jesus had work to do on the cross. The Father had work to do on the cross. And the Father was working in Christ Jesus, we're told. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Took all the sins of the world, didn't count it to them, credited it to Jesus' account. And now, what's he doing now in the church age? The same thing. Except instead of putting Jesus on the cross, he now has a whole planet full of believers in Christ that are going to the four corners of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, people, nation. And God, just as he was at work in Christ as the prototype, he's still at work in Christ. Just at work in church age believers in Christ. God was in Christ and now has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So don't be nervous next time you give the gospel to some unbeliever because it's the Father working in you. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So just think of it this way. You ever see a, a ventriloquist act where you get this guy and the, the dummy that's sitting there on his on his knee. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? And just think about it. You're the dummy. (laughs) God's the ventriloquist. All right? God is making the appeal through you, begging this unbeliever to be reconciled. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us, as though we're just a dummy on his knee. Okay? We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, of course, we should be volitional about this. We should be um, actively engaged in our priesthood. We should be, uh, you know, I'm not saying that just, you know, don't study the Word of God, don't practice, don't learn your gospel. Don't. I mean, we're not saying any of that. Some Pentecostals do. But don't do any of that. You should be rightly prepared to give the gospel. You should be ready to give a defense. You should be biblically equipped to, uh, to evangelize this lost and dying world. But then in all of your preparations and equipping, know that it's the Father doing it. He's prepared you. He's equipped you. He's trained you. And now at this moment, 
that fearful moment of confrontation between you and the unbeliever. Say, I don't like confrontation. Well, speak to him anyway, because it's the Father who's going to be speaking in and through you. And then relax about it. All right, so this ministry of reconciliation, it's God who was in Christ is now in you, working through us that which is pleasing in His sight. Okay, so that's what we didn't ran out of time and didn't quite get to last Sunday. For this morning, verse 22, but I urge you, brethren, put up with me. <laughs> he says, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And you know, it's, it's kind of curious at the end of a book of the Bible, and I've never written a book of the Bible, but if I wrote a book of the Bible, I wouldn't apologize for it at the end of the book, or I wouldn't ask them to put up with it. And so it's, a, it's quite a curious ending, and Paul never did this in his epistles, but the author of Hebrews is doing this here. He's saying, uh, bear with it, put up with it, and it's actually pretty short. So verse 22 is a bit of a puzzle because the book of Hebrews is not a short book. It's taken us three years to study. It's 13 chapters long. It's longer than anything Paul wrote, longer than Romans, longer than 1 Corinthians. It's, uh, it's comparable to something that, like, like we say, if Luke is the author, then we're not shocked because the gospel of Luke is the longest of the gospels and, and the book of Acts is long. And, so, and it's the kind of style of classical Greek writing that, that Luke is capable of. And it's very high polished Greek. Um, but he says, bear with this brief word of, ex- of exhortation. What is this about? Well, you might remember when we started chapter 13, I pointed out chapter 13 is an afterthought. Chapter 13 is an add-on. It's an appendix. That the main message of Hebrews is chapters 1 through 12. Chapters 1 through 12 is a tremendous theological priesthood discourse. And then chapter 13 seems to be uh, a, an attachment, an end note that gets personal, where the author starts speaking to these readers and uh, exhorting them in very practical ways. In fact, it is a word of exhortation uh, chapter that's attached to the end of a, of a theological discourse. So what happens here then at the end of this, he says it was just a brief chapter as an epilogue to the overall book. Thank you for putting up with it and make the application, live it out. So the author here is following his benediction with an exhortation to pay attention to the exhortation to put up with it. And uh, the language here is interesting. And this was common in the first century. There was a pattern that we see in the book of Acts and we see in the New Testament epistles whereby a scripture reading was then followed by a word of exhortation. And so I'm going to take this slide a little bit out of order. I'm going to start with the bottom half of the point and then go back and take the top half of the point. Scripture reading was often followed by a word of exhortation. And an example of this comes in Acts 13, 15. And uh, without reading all of Acts 13, this is Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, traveling to different places. And each place they arrived, they would arrive at a synagogue. And in those synagogues, there would be a scripture reading that would take place. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. 
And so this was a common synagogue practice, and it seems to be a practice that they adapted in the early churches when some of the synagogues got converted into New Testament churches. That they would start with a scripture reading as a part of their order of worship, and then they would have a brief word of exhortation. And maybe it was a different person giving that word of exhortation. Maybe it was the same person, if you will, okay? And so uh, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. And boy, he has a word. He's got a word of exhortation and he's going to be preaching Christ uh, and particularly in a synagogue setting where there's uh, going to be crowds that don't know that, that the Messiah has come. Likewise in 1 Timothy 4.13 Paul might be delayed. He's writing in 1 Timothy so that they can function without him. Uh, really preparing for the next generation, preparing for the post-apostolic age. And uh, so he says, you know, I might be, I might be delayed. And then he says, I prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. We don't know how young Timothy was. We can kind of guess based on this phrase, right? Let no one look down on your youthfulness. You know, I know I'm over 50. I don't think anyone would look down on me for being too young. Uh, I'm, I'm past that stage. But, uh, you know, there was, there's a time that, you know, you're in your 20s and people, come, visitors think, you know, is this guy really, could he be my pastor? He seems kind of young. And there's, there's, there's prejudice and there's, you know, attitudes and whatnot. The point being is we don't know how old Timothy was here. But we know that this is 12 years after he started traveling with the Apostle Paul. And so how young was he? I think he was probably a 10-year-old boy or a 12-year-old boy when he started traveling with the Apostle Paul. And, and after 12 years of seminary training, he now has his own church. He's taking the congregation in Ephesus. And, uh, but he's still young enough that uh, some of the old-timers there might not accept his, uh, his teaching. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And until I come, give attention to... Now here's the order of this, which is interesting, because it starts with the public reading of Scripture, and then see what follows. It says, exhortation and teaching. And so that if we take that as three separate items in a sequence, it could be viewed as an order of worship. Okay, and, and we're not as formal around here, but there are churches that have very strict orders of worship that would include, you know, a call to worship, an opening hymn, an offering, a second hymn, second offering, a third hymn. They have different things that they do. They might have a, a, a reading of scripture, another offering, another you know hymn, and then the uh, and then the sermon. And by the time you get through all the preliminaries and whatever, the the, the poor guy's got 10-15 minutes and he does what he can and then there's time to wrap it up and, and do all the, the, the end of service details. Okay, But if we take this as an order of worship the public reading of scripture comes first, the word of exhortation comes as a follow-up. It comes as, a, as an applicable application based upon what was just read here's an exhortation, a paraclesis that might very well be the gifted par- paraclete that delivers it. Then followed by the prepared teaching of the, uh, the pastor teacher. So with that as a pattern, you can view the outline of, of Hebrews the same way. We have the tremendous theological discourse of chapters 1 through 12. 
And then we have the, uh, the author attaches an exhortation to it that is chapter 13. The practical exhortation of how this flock needs to operate based upon the, uh, the theology they've been given in those 12 chapters. Now the, the verb to put up with, to endure, to pay attention to, we have it a couple of other times. In fact it's only used three times in the New Testament. Acts 18, 14. Again I mistyped it. All right. The great debate is, is uh, this is faster than flipping pages, I get that. Um, even with all my mistypes, <laughs> even with all backing up and typing it two or three times, I can type it three times faster than usually folks in flip pages. All right. Paul was about to open his mouth, as usual, and Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. So the synagogue didn't like Paul's church in Corinth. And so the synagogue leader said, hey, we've got a connection here with uh, the city government. Let's just take Paul to court and get, get the proconsul to uh, issue a cease and desist order. We'll get, we'll get the politicians involved to shut that church down. We want to keep our synagogues open, of course, still, but we want Paul's church to be shut down. So they dragged him to the bema, to the judgment seat, the, the Corinthian judgment seat, okay? And Gallio basically throws him out of court and says, what is this? What are you wasting my time for? If it was a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, then yeah, get the, get the courts involved, get the politicians involved. This is not a law enforcement issue. It's not a judicial issue. You have your synagogue, he has his church, you don't like what he's doing, that's not my business. If it was a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge in these matters. you got a theological thing going on and this Roman said, deal with it. I'm not dealing with that. Pilate tried to do the same thing too, by the way. Pilate tried to wash his hands and not crucify Jesus Christ. And it was the, the religious leaders that said, no, he needs to die and, and we can't <clears throat> they couldn't execute, execute Jesus without Pilate's permission. Excuse me, I seem to have congestion. All right. So I am unwilling to be a judge in these matters. I am unwilling to put up with you. It would be reasonable for me to put up with you. The idea of gritting your teeth and bearing with something, putting up with something, it's not pleasant but you put up with it. Okay? You don't like it but um, you know, mom fixed it, dad prayed for it, you're going to eat it. And you're not going to complain about it. <laughs> so you put up with it. Kind of helps if you hold your breath, you don't taste it so much. You hold your breath, you chew it down. If you swallow more without chewing, you get it down better and then you don't taste as much of it. Then you grab your, your milk and drink that. Okay, And this is what we're talking We're talking about putting up with something. And, and it's almost unthinkable for us that he's written a book of the Bible, he's written a closing chapter that's full of blessings. It's full of exhortations and encouragements and blessings. And who wouldn't want to just devour the meat of the Word of God? But he says, you know, see if you can put up with this. Using language of putting up with it. for um, And you wonder almost, is it tongue-in-cheek? Is there some inside 
understanding that his readers would immediately know and is lost to us 2,000 years later. That's my suspicion. My suspicion is that they used this verb to put up with one another all the time. And so when he said, please put up with this word of exhortation, it was among the most tender things he could have said to them because of the meaning that it held for them in that usage. That's my suspicion anyway. The brief written exhortation is not the whole book of Hebrews. The brief written exhortation is chapter 13 that is appended to the end of the great discourse of chapters 1 through 12. This tremendous discourse that begins with a theological prologue, God after he spoke to the fathers long ago in many portions and in many ways, in the last of these days has spoken to us in his son. And the the tremendous prologue to Hebrews in in chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 launches 12 chapters of some of the deepest theology the New Testament presents. Specifically bridging Old Testament theology into a New Testament application. Then chapter 13 gets tacked on to the end of it and uh, it is the word of exhortation that he's encouraging his readers to put up with. Alright, verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. Our brother Timothy. Now we've already had many connections between the author and Paul. Uh, The personal friendship with Timothy would be yet another link between the author of Hebrews and the Pauline circle because there was no greater student of Paul's, there was no greater protege than, than Timothy himself who received two books of the Bible written to him, First and Second Timothy, and then he was a co-author of six other epistles that Paul wrote in, uh, in that, and was a traveling companion with Paul when he wrote the remainder. Uh, in fact, other than Galatians, and even there, Timothy had a Galatian connection because Timothy was a child in the very Galatian region that the book of Galatians was written to. And so you know, if you think about the, the career of Paul and the career of Timothy, uh, we, we've learned a lot about this young man in, in different places. What we don't see, except for here, is any indication that Timothy ever went to jail, that Timothy ever went to prison. But here we have the only verse of Scripture to indicate that uh, Timothy experienced an imprisonment. No other Scripture indicates an imprisonment for Timothy, although he certainly expected such. Ooh, I'm missing half of my points. Okay, well then I'll just fill it in verbally. No other scripture indicates an imprisonment for Timothy, but he certainly expected such. Again and again, Paul told him to fight the good fight, to run with endurance. Time and time again, Paul would tell him that uh, anyone that names the name of Christ is going to have this kind of difficulty. You have um, 1 Timothy 6.12 and 2 Timothy 1.8. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. There's going to be tough things ahead of you. Timothy was ready for it. 2 Timothy 1.8 We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Well, that's 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.8 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You know, I think Timothy would be disappointed if he lived his whole life and never went to jail once for his faith. You know, he'd start to wonder what's wrong with me. Why does the adversary keep me in the ministry? Why doesn't he put me in jail yet? That kind of thing. And there are plenty of occasions in Philippi, Paul and Silvanus got thrown in the jail. Timothy was left alone. In Thessalonica, Paul and Silvanus got driven out of town. Timothy was left alone. They were able to send him back. He could do more teaching in there because he wasn't uh, noticed with, with Paul. Like I say, he might have been 12 years old and had a chance to go in there and have ministry when Paul couldn't go back into Thessalonica again. So we have these indicators that he was prepared to suffer. 2 Timothy 2.3 Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.1 Realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. Your ministry is going to be harder. You know, the men that we ordain here, the next generation, the generation after them. Do you think this world's getting better or getting worse? What's ministry going to be like? And all through chapter 3 and all through chapter 4 we have these statements. You get down to verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Verse 14, you however continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of. No matter how tough things get, don't stop. If they throw you in jail, well, the Word of God's not in prison. Keep preaching. There's going to be fellow inmates there. There's going to be a jailer there like the guy in Philippi. Keep preaching. So we certainly expected such. In chapter 4, you've got verse 5, 9, 11, 13, 21, all pointing to the tough things that Timothy was anticipating. The author's hope is that Timothy will come to his location so that together, the author and Timothy can together go to the Hebrews' recipient's location. That's about all we can say here because we're guessing. We're guessing. Take notice that our brother Timothy's been released. Now our brother Timothy, that's a clue. He doesn't say my brother Timothy. He doesn't say your brother Timothy. He says our brother Timothy. Timothy. So in whatever local church association that is receiving this correspondence of which the author himself had previously been with them, so too was Timothy previously with them because he is our brother Timothy, with whom if he comes soon, and that's up in the air, he may not make it. He may take too long. The author is not going to wait that long. He'll wait as long as he can but he's, he wants to get to where these readers are. Okay, And this goes way back. We're going to start reviewing this way back to chapter 1. Where was the author and where were the recipients? Well, they weren't in the same place. <laughs> the letter went from point A to point B, but we don't know where point A was or point B. And we don't know who the recipients even are except for the fact that they have a priestly background. Before they became New Testament believers, they were Old Testament believer priests. Levitical priests in Jerusalem. Not likely they're still in Jerusalem. Where are they? The other clue we have is in the next verse, those from Italy greet you. 
Aha, Italy. Is that point A or point B? Because <laughs> you can think of it either way. So the author's hope is that Timothy will come to his location so that together they can go to the Hebrews recipient's location. Imagine, I mean, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have text messaging. The, you know, the author here, Luke or whoever, couldn't just say, hey Timothy, where are you? You know, are you on your way? Meet me over here. All right. Then it says, greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Now, previously we've talked about those leaders. They had former leaders they were supposed to remember fondly and and imitate. They had present leaders that they were expected to obey. You remember that? That was in this chapter. That was in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. These are the present leaders. There were past leaders in verse 7. Remember those who led you, who used to lead you back in the past. Remember back in the Ralph Braun era when Ralph was the pastor here. And uh, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. They seem to be gone, but we want to live in their memory and we want to honor their uh, the blessings that they provided to us as a congregation. And so there's past leaders, there's present leaders, and these present leaders are the ones that, uh, that the author here is greeting. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. You know, if you have a church that's nothing but leaders, that's a problem. And if you have a church that's nothing but followers and no leadership, that's a problem. But we have leaders and saints here, and it's curious to me that it appears to be that this message to the Hebrews, this 12-chapter theological um, masterpiece, is specifically targeted to only the Jewish background believers of a much larger congregation. And yet here at the end, he says, go ahead and say hi to those other guys too. Because <laughs> let me tell you, a Gentile can benefit from this. We've all been benefiting from this. A Gentile believer can be edified by the book of Hebrews, no question. But the primary recipients were the Jewish background Christians, those with the priestly uh, uh, foundation. But he welcomes them all and he greets them all. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. And then he says, those from Italy greet you. Those from Italy greet you. So um, the former leaders, the present leaders, as well as additional saints beyond the target audience for this book. Remember, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And if it's not written to you, there's still an application for you to make. There is still the edification that takes place. So the things that are written to the Philippians, we still grow from it. The things that are written to the Colossians, we still grow from it because it wasn't written to us literally, but it's intended for the entire edification of the body of Christ. So we adapt it, we apply it. Same thing here. This tremendous treatment of priesthood that was intended for the, uh, the Levitical priest that God saved that became part of the New Testament church. We still apply it. We, we live it, we learn it, we, uh, we, we, we thrive in it. In fact, maybe even more so. 
<laughs> because we, we can't have a racial claim to any of that. We can't claim to be Levites. We can't claim to be the chosen people. We're just uh, Gentile dogs begging for the, tra- uh, the table scraps that, uh, that might fall from the table. Like that Phoenician woman that Jesus was impressed with. He said, wow, there's faith. So the additional saints beyond the target audience for this book. And then he says, those from Italy greet you. Those from Italy greet you. He says, ciao. (laughs) Isn't that how the Italians would say hi? (laughs) All right. Those from Italy greet you. Now, this could mean that the author is presently in Italy. Right? Those from Italy greet you. That might be a clue as to where he is. The point A in our dilemma a puzzle, the point A to point B. We don't know where the author was. We don't know where the recipients were. So somebody carried this scroll from point A to point B and said the author's on his way and if Timothy gets there in time he'll be with him also. And they could read that at point B where their church was located. Was that in Italy? Or was the author in Italy? Could go either way. So it could mean that the author is presently in Italy, but it could also mean that the recipients are in Italy and the author has some Italians with him wherever he is, wherever he's writing from. Say, we have a family from Ukraine and, and you know, you want to greet other Ukrainians and if you have people in common and, and so forth. In fact, that's how they found Austin Bible Church. It was because of mutual friends we have in common in Ukraine. And previous trips to Ukraine. And so, you know, when you greet somebody from where they are and you've got family members that are still there, you've got friends that are still there, or you're going to be headed back there next, uh, next April and, uh, you know, while I'm there, do you want me to greet anybody or carry something over? That's pretty common. Yeah. Instead of shipping something over, just, hey, can you put this in your bag? And so typically when I go to Ukraine, I've got loads of stuff in my suitcases. And when I come back from Ukraine, I've got different loads of stuff. And different loads of different stuff that's coming back the other direction. And that's fine. I mean, it's the way it works, okay? And because you want to greet the commonality. And so the, um, even though we don't have all the answers and we still have puzzles and we're still left wondering, uh, and, and you can read commentaries, and boy, some of these commentaries, they take a stand. They think they've settled it in their mind and they know. And I'm like, Really? Can it go either way? Anyway, those from Italy greet you. So um, Rome was not the only Italian church. There were other churches in Italy. In fact, Pudioli had a, a group of believers. When Paul was traveling to Rome and when they first landed on the coast, and this is just up through Acts 28, since Hebrews were written after Acts 28, who knows how many more Italian churches have been planted. But after they left Malta and they sailed around and put in at Syracuse, stayed there for three days. From there we sailed around, arrived at Regium, stayed, uh, and a day later a south wind sprang up and on the second day we came to Puteoli. And there we found some brethren. Oh, look at that. There's Christians in Puteoli. They probably had a sign out front that said Puteoli Bible Church. All right. 
And we found some brethren. We were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius. So there were multiple local churches. And even when you read in the book of, he- in the book of uh, Romans, it's clear that there's a minimum of two congregations that are alluded to in, uh, in the book of Romans. Possibly more than that. If, if you're meeting in homes, how much room do you have for a, for a large gathering for hosting a church? Okay? Better be a pretty big home. Or uh, you've got to rent some quarters somewhere to, uh, to have your church gatherings. So we don't know. Uh, we also know by the second century there were many, many more, and we can name some of those through church history and, and things of that nature. Some of the church fathers that wrote from other, I think Apollonia was, was one, and you can play the Journeys of Paul board game and you can find some other ones that were uh, there in Italy. All right, so the Italians say hi. Then he says, grace, grace be with you all. In Pauline fashion, Hebrews closes with God's grace. The Apostle Paul closed every epistle with grace. He wasn't the only one. Peter would close epistles with grace. John would close epistles with grace. Notice in Revelation twenty-two twenty-one, we don't think Paul wrote Revelation. We know John wrote Revelation. But it ends with a grace benediction. And that's what the author of Hebrews is also choosing to do. Went ahead and did my Logos search, searching for the Pauline benedictions to make sure that he didn't miss one. And uh, sure enough, there they are. There's the usages of grace in every Pauline benediction. And uh, he didn't miss a single one of them. So Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13. You know, there's uh, no better way to end a message than, uh, than with grace. And that's what we have here. Well, um, let's look at a few of these as we have our time remaining and then we'll close in prayer. Maybe if I let you go a little early that'll make up for all the times I've kept you late. Notice that grace is expected to be a living part of your walk. It's not just um, it's not just a meaningless expression. It's not just, I mean it's like most of our departing expressions are calls for divine guidance, like God be with ye, or adios to God, or something of that nature. We're, we're commending a person in their travels, in their wherever you go, God be with you. Um, and yet that sense is just totally lost. We just have words like hello and goodbye, and, and we don't really dwell upon the, the divine call to assistance that these things really are. Uh, but in Romans 16.20 it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Does that get your attention? So that maybe just living daily life and where you're going and facing a coronavirus or facing a, uh, a race riot or whatever you're facing out there in the world, um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That the very grace of God is traveling with us, watching over us, shaping us. And then down to verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It seems to be a, a formula for a, for a sign-off. 1 Corinthians 16, 23. I'm not going to read all of these, but just uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The benediction that Pastor Todd Kennedy uses, Spokane Bible Church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's maybe the most formal out of all of them. 
And uh, just think about the realities of that as we go forth from this place. That, that we do leave here with the grace of God. We leave here with the love of God. We leave here in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Those are present abiding realities wherever we go. Okay, Your pastor can't follow you around everywhere you go during the week, but this does. God's grace does. The love of God does. The fellowship of the Spirit does. It's a marvelous thing. Alright, well you can look up the rest of those as you will. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for the book of Hebrews, Father, and, and uh, we're going to spend five weeks or maybe six. We're going we're gonna to review what you've been teaching us for the last three years. There's so much, Father, including uh, not only the priesthood material, but entering into rest, claiming the promises, walking by faith, the superiority to angels, the superiority to Moses. This is a powerful book, and Father, I expect... Uh, it's going to have an impact on us as a congregation for years to come. It's going to have an impact on each one of us individually. And I pray that it already has started to do so, Father, that we appreciate our priesthood, that we engage our priesthood daily, that we, at a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat, we, we just throw ourselves before the throne of grace because that's where we belong, standing in your presence, making our requests known. And I pray that we, uh, with this attitude, indeed, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. Rejoice always. This is our position within the veil, our priestly function in the body of Christ. So Father, uh, thank you for the past three years. Thank you for the next uh, study, Father, the Genesis material. Um, I've already been uh, teasing it and excited about it. and it's uh, It's so foundational to everything, to creation, to marriage, to families, to children, to nations, uh, our orientation to Israel as the covenant people, the, uh, the Tower of Babel. I mean, just everything in Genesis, Father, is foundational to the 65 books that follow and to our daily life today. So I pray that we have humility to, uh, to receive all these things. Thanking you for your faithfulness. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.